Hey there, it's Dr. Nazanin Mo'oli, and I want to chat with you about a key ingredient for a fabulous date night, feeling sexy. And come on, let's be real. What you wear plays a big part in how you rock that confidence. That's why I'm thrilled to introduce you to Quince. Quince brings you premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts starting at just $30, along with washable silk tops, 40-carat gold jewelry, and more. And guess what? All of their goodies are priced 50 to 80% lower than similar brands. By teaming up directly with top factories, Quince skipped the middleman and hands us the saving. Plus, they stick to factories with safe, ethical practices and top-notch fabrics and finishes. How awesome is that? Picking from Quince's website was tough because they have a ton of fabulous choices. I ended up going for their 100% washable silk sleep dress in champagne. And let me tell you, my husband was floored. He's convinced whoever rocks this is in for a blast. I'm going to record some content on that dress so you can see how fabulous is that dress. Elevate your date night style with Quince. Pop over to quince.com slash sexology for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash sexology to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash sexology. Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hey there, welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Today, we're going to talk about sex and military, and we're going to explore it from two different angles. First angle is about how individuals who are experiencing sexual abuse and trauma in the military, what are some of their struggles, what gets in the way of reporting, and how is it impacting other members in their unit? And also, secondly, we're going to talk about the experience of Coming back home to the families after being exposed to combat and trauma. And in my private practice, uh, recently I've been getting a number of different couples where one of the partner, usually husband, been in military. And there's some struggles about reconnecting with their partners, reconnecting with their sexualities. And we're going to talk about what gets in the way and what you can do to make sure that you can continue having fulfilling sexual life after getting back to your civilian lives. My guest today is Mr. Timothy Winnicky. He himself served in Air Force and he he had a big role in different advocacy programs. And now he's a counselor and he works with different people in working profession, veterans, and also he developed programs for firefighters and he does really good work and he got lots of great accolades for his advocacy 
programs and efforts that he's done throughout the years. He also a fellow podcaster and he recently launched his podcast where he talks about different stories of people's in helping professions. He tells his story, at least I just listened to a few of his episodes and also he has a friend talking about their stories. And I think it's a great podcast. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Mr. Timothy Winnicky. Welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited and honored to have Mr. Timothy Winnicky, licensed addiction counselor. And our show today, did I pronounce your name right, Tim? <laughs> you got it just right. Thank okay. you so much. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you on this show. I know before we started recording, I was sharing with you how much I enjoyed listening to your podcast. And I know we're, we're certainly going to talk more about it during the interview, but I really enjoy hearing your story of being in military and you you talked about your experiences. And I know initially when we talked a few months ago, I was sharing with you that how I see some commonalities about how veterans, people in service kind of experience sexuality and how, what are some of the common themes that I see? So I'm very excited about this conversation. Me too. I'm really happy to be here. And I don't want to say like everyone's experience is the same, right? <laughs> I'm sure there are lots of differences and people's experiences are different, but I think there are interesting commonalities and it's important to talk to someone like you that have been in service and also you've done lots of advocacy work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's one of those important things that when we talk about veterans, I, I do trainings for other clinicians here locally in Colorado. And I always start with the basic understanding that there's 2 million people mm-hmm. in uniform at any point. So when we talk about these themes, it's their themes, right? Just like you said, every individual in that culture is going to experience these things. So hopefully the, the conversation can help and, and highlight without having people start making assumptions. Absolutely. And thank you so much for emphasizing that. Let us start talking about how do you see the masculine identity gets kind of tied into military service? Well, it's primarily one of the few places left that men can be seen as classic men. I I think it's part of why of all of the things the military has, we pull from every culture, every socioeconomic background. The only places where we differ from the public are we draw more transgender people and more men. And the reason for that is, is there anything perceived as more masculine than a man in uniform? So it's really vindicating for kind of the classic ideas and the traditional roles of manhood. Where that gets interesting is as most members grow and get used to being in uniform and have that become part of themselves as opposed to their whole self, it can really empower positive masculine exploration. Uh, The amount of friends I have from my time in service that are now comfortable being stay-at-home dads, where they're comfortable stepping into caregiver roles because it doesn't impact their masculinity as powerful. On the other end, I also have seen people become very hurt by taking on the more toxic ends of what has been framed as masculinity. So essentially it can be both freeing 
and entrapping depending on the work of the individual. That is so interesting. I didn't think about positive masculinity and how being uh, having the history of being in service and being a veteran can reinforce that. That's interesting. Yeah, it's it brings forward the idea that I, I actually struggle sometimes with the idea of toxic masculinity because it's become so synonymous with the idea of masculinity. And that becomes hurtful for people that identify as masculine if the only thing that we're hearing from the profession is the ways in which it's hurt people and the ways in which it's hurting us. There's not a lot of room to choose the positive aspects of our identity that we want to keep and push forward and mentor other young people with. And the military is a place where we can do that. Uh, it highlights the idea of um, one of the things that's key to my masculinity personally is that I am violently capable, I am able to protect the people I love, and that does not make me violent by nature. Mm-hmm. And there's a distinction there that I think is important for a lot of men. Right. And I, I like the kind of your elaboration and your uh, your process, you sharing your process of like kind of how do you see toxic masculinity? Because I think mm-hmm. because of all this negative stories in media, and I think I'm female and I've definitely seen, it's not like, you know, it's the stories that female are making up. Like I I work at organizations and experience sexual harassment and all of that. But I think it's it's an interesting dynamic as far as then it creates this discomfort for male and about masculine energy. And I think it becomes this delicate dance of how you can still express your masculinity, but wouldn't be perceived as a way, as it's, as you were talking about, like a, a toxic. And yeah, I think it's interesting. Yeah, it just it, it's one of those things that it is neither good nor bad until it's used. Mm-hmm. And as long as there's self-exploration, self-exploration and group accountability, it goes wonderfully. Like my part of my work when I was still in the military was teaching the bystander intervention program to stop sexual harassment and assault. And the strings that we pulled to get men to break that bystander effect, right, to start noticing and acting was that masculine protectiveness, was that onus on being a member of a group and feeling protective of that group. And there's a lot of ways that that can come off as positive. And there's also just as many ways as it can come off as negative, right? The military certainly has an earned reputation for being a boys club. There are problems with sexual assault in the military, just like there are in the rest of the country. But the military has been in the forefront on how to handle and stop that. Most of the college programs around bystander training were initially developed and utilized in the military. And I'm kind of curious, because as you were talking about, unfortunately, sexual assaults and abuse are very common and people on all different kind of aspects of life and walks of life, unfortunately, experience that. But how do you see the difference that you could have noticed between the experience of people in military and civilians experience when it comes to uh, sexual trauma and abuse? Mm -hmm. Well, sexual trauma and abuse is going to be traumatic in a whole separate way from like a mugging for anybody, right? There's violence and then there's sexual violence. And for the military, it really is framed out like a family system. You have members that are isolated, that have moved away from home, that have left the supportive systems to go join this system with one purpose and one mission. And that bonds people and it really sets up a family dynamic. The people next to you become your siblings. 
the sergeants in charge of you become the older and elder siblings. The officers in charge of you become almost perennial. And so what you see happen most often is perpetrators are about power and leveraging power to hurt people. And you won't find a harder power dynamic than you do in the rank structure in the military and in the ingrained training to follow orders by people above you. In the same way that a child learns to obey their parents for their safety, military members develop a piece of that for their leadership. And so when sexual assault occurs for somebody in uniform, it actually tends to have a lot of the same themes we see in incest, Mm -hmm. where there's this urge to protect the system, to protect the whole, to keep the secret even further. And this idea that if if they were hurt within the system, there's a lot of self-shaming and blaming. That is interesting. And I love the comparison between the kind of family system and the military, because I know when I have a survivor of sexual childhood sexual abuse, and it's, it's an interesting and different dynamic as how at times siblings were kind of, or the other parents were protecting of the perpetrator because, because of the sense of kind of wanting to quote unquote, save the family system. And that's interesting. That's a it seems like there are some uh, commonality and common themes. Absolutely. The, the biggest thing within the military is the idea that the mission always comes first. In the hierarchy of importance for where an individual in the military sits, they have the mission that they're working on, the people in uniform next to them, their family, their friends, and then if they're lucky, they're fifth on their list of priorities. So it becomes very hard when reporting on someone who hurt you is going to, you know, it's going to negatively impact the mission. You know that people on your team are going to be split. Some of them are going to believe you. Some of them are going to believe the person that hurt you. You know that at best, it's going to take a member and probably yourself out of the mission while the system tries to cope and handle and punish. So there's a lot of onus to not report just based on the culture of service. And do you see any differences between male experience and female experience when it comes to sexual abuse and trauma in in the military? Absolutely. In the five years of advocacy I worked, I only ever heard of one man coming forward and they wouldn't come forward on base. They simply called a resource officer and asked for resources two hours away because they were so afraid of being seen as a victim. Mm -hmm. The best story I have to relate the extremity or the, sorry, the extreme reaction for men versus women is after four years of doing advocacy work in the military, my last year in, I got to be part of training a new batch of advocates. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time in my career that every single person that was in training had volunteered to be there. Most of the time, commanders had to order people to take on this role. And we had spent three days talking, bonding, debating, and working on how to address the issue and how to support people that had survived sexual assault. And these were warm, wonderful, caring people who were angry about what was happening in their service. And then we watched a video where a police officer discloses his story about being assaulted while in uniform. The officer walked into an alley to move a trash can that was a hazard. Two men held him at gunpoint and assaulted him. And when that happened, this room of people that had been supported, been understanding, had never once 
victim blamed, exploded into fury. And the theme was, I would have died instead of letting that happen. He was armed, he was empowered, and he was in uniform. And he should have chosen to die instead of let that happen to him. Oh, wow. And those were people that were aware, that had been trained, and wanted to solve the problem. There is an amount of efficacy and power that comes with taking on the responsibility of the uniform. And the idea that you can be so disempowered in such an intimate way is truly painful and isolating. Wow, what a profound story. And again, I'm not surprised. And I think that can play into the same thing that you were talking about. Maybe it's easier for female women in service, although I'm sure it's never easy to step forward and saying, and you know, because in societies, quote unquote, it's more acceptable or more common for women to kind of experience these kind of assaults and trauma. And when it comes to male, like the issues become more complex. And I, I also, I, I see it just generally in civilians as well. When we talk about survivors of abuse, women are raised from the time they're five to be aware of the violence of men. Men are raised to never think about it in anything other than the possibility that they might have to fight another man. Mm-hmm. So while the system is horrible to women and hurt women so consistently, it's at least in their awareness that it's possible that it can happen to them. Most men never think of the possibility that they could be assaulted in such a way. Right. And when you were teaching that class, when you were doing the training, do you feel you were able to get through that group of loving people that they wanted to volunteer to help to shift their perspective on that issue? And if so, what are some of the key things that we need to keep in mind? We weren't able to. Uh, we spent two hours on it and the room was so raw and volatile that we had to let it go. And essentially there was myself as an advocate, there was the woman in charge of the program and we determined that in future trainings she would watch for the reactions and hopefully would be able to find one advocate that she could use if she needed. But in part, the reason for that response was there were so few men reporting despite the fact that we know there are male survivors, Mm -hmm. that there just wasn't a way to reach them. It it wasn't anything we addressed then. The hope is that it's come further along. I I see it in the younger generation of men. There is a a kindness to the millennial generation of men with each other. They laugh, they cry more than my generation and my father's generation. And hopefully we can start working towards a better understanding. Uh, I think Jackson Katz's work is probably the best work I've seen on this, where he pivots from the idea that men only hurt women to men hurt boys and ourselves. And when men hurt other people, they are also hurting themselves. Can you elaborate on that? What do you mean about when you mentioned that, like, you know, when they're hurting others, they're hurting the boy inside themselves? So the idea is that we've Basically, from the 60s forward, we talked a lot about how to protect women, and we've talked a lot about how men have hurt women, Mm -hmm. and we're just now getting the conversation started around why are men hurting women, and what is it costing men to do this? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the isolation that comes from being in power. They're finally starting to do studies on lost work and efficacy from perpetrators. 
So I was at a domestic violence conference this summer and a woman had this data. And essentially what they discovered is they know the impact of productivity on female survivors and they know that it's pretty profound. What they didn't understand is that the perpetrator loses 80% of the work that a, that a survivor does. So almost the same amount simply by the effort and isolation and anger and focus it takes to be in control as a perpetrator. That's just costing work, much less connection. You can't connect with what you control. Most people trying to reach for control are doing so out of fear of losing connection. It takes a lot longer. There's entire certifications on being a domestic violence counselor and what that takes. And the general route is it takes about six months of open moral feedback before those men are ready to take on the intrinsic loneliness that their world perspective and their abuse has left them in. That is so interesting. I didn't think about that component of it as much because I think for, as you mentioned, for decades, we were kind of focusing on kind of the victims, which is understandable, but I think it seems like right now there's this more kind of focus and also more attention around what happens that these behaviors are this dynamic get unfolded and what goes on for perpetrators and what we can do to kind of rehabilitate and change the, those behaviors. Well, and just bring men's awareness of how their interactions uh, impact perpetrators. 90% of men are not perpetrators, but by their being in the world and a guy laughing at a sexist joke doesn't make him a perpetrator. But a guy laughing at a sexist joke in front of a perpetrator convinces that perpetrator that he, that gentleman supports his action. It's so intricate and the web that hurts us is so thick and so established that it makes sense that it's taken us this long. It's taken us 40 years to recognize how women are being hurt and we're still not there. The Me Too movement is still pushing forward and there's still huge backlash and victim blaming about these stories. The only way we're going to finish the loop is by bringing men in the discussion and having them have a reason besides the women they love. They need to see it as a way to connect with themselves and to be a fully connected human being, or we're not going to keep moving the ball forward. Right. And I love the example you, you made about the jokes, because I know like many of my, my relatives, I know many of my clients, when I work with them one-on-one, -on -one, I don't experience them as being like these perpetrators or like misogynistic men that are out there to get women. It's just a part of the culture, as you're right. It's just hard to speak out when someone's making those jokes or making the behaviors, acting on the behaviors, that's, it is in a gray area. And it's, I think it's just as a culture, it's just the way that we kind of pursue and kind of portray masculinity can be a part of a problem as well. And, it, it, and I think, you know, speaking to how it impacts intimacy, the, the tighter the role of a man becomes, the more uh, the, what it means to be a man is to be in control the less connected and sexually empowered that man can be. And I see that a lot in my work with men in, in our field. The idea of the vulnerability, of acknowledging a want, of acknowledging that they like something, 
that they need their partner to fulfill a need for them and that their sexual connection is important. It becomes either the only way they can express care for their partner, because of course men are supposed to be sexual, or that role becomes so limited because of the need for control that they aren't allowed to explore their own sexual needs. Right. And I think vulnerability is at the heart of intimacy, especially in a long-term relationship. And I see it like my practice is close to VA in Long Beach and I get clients and couples that uh, one of the partner was in military. And I, and I see the pattern that you're talking about. It's hard to show vulnerability. And at times, many of the people that I see, they return from active duty. They had this trauma and it's hard to say kind of like, you know, I'm struggling. And their mm-hmm. partner might experience them detached, not interested. It's hard to be kind of at times get in, in touch with your masculine energy and kind of sexuality when you're suffering. And I think it's just hard. Part of our work is about helping people to kind of give a voice to those struggles. Mm. Well, and I, I think that we're right at that transition point out of uniform is so important for masculinity because for many men in uniform, Wearing that uniform is so intrinsically tied to their role as a man that to lose that and to mourn that and figure out what happens next can get very complicated and can have pretty profound impacts on their own sexuality and what it means to be intimate. The confidence and the, the testosterone boost that comes from serving in those roles, it can be complex for couples. What are some of the ways that you can see that you often see that combat trauma is impacting couples' intimacy? Well, it, it goes back to a few things. One of the best stories that I have is a, is a dear friend of mine told me the story. They were an infantry Marine captain and three, they were in a heavy firefight where their unit suffered casualties. And then three days later, they were holding their son for the first time. Mm-hmm. We just found new data on the highest suicide rate of recent combat troops being people coming home to families, Mm -hmm. which was absolutely shocking to the field. Everything that we know about suicide, everything that we assume about family systems is that coming home to a supportive environment is going to bracket those members. Mm -hmm. What we've discovered over the last two decades of war is that there's no downtime. There's no time to repair and for that person leaving combat to change gears. And there's an instinct in almost everyone that goes to combat to protect their family from their experience. They take on the burden of combat so that civilians don't have to. And explicitly what person going through an experience that they found traumatic would want to put that experience on a loved one. So the numbing and the avoidance strategies around trauma are hugely impactful in intimacy. And what they found is the better understanding that the spouse has of what combat trauma is and what their partner went through, the better off they are as far as penetrating that avoidance and that numbness that so often come from that traumatic experience. 
And that is so true because when we numb, we numb all kinds of emotions. And Mm -hmm. it makes sense that I know when we do kind of exposure work with some of the clients that they've been in service and they've been in combat, it's just the things that they experience, the kind of like the stories that they have, it's just so profound and it's very, uh, can be very isolating and they just don't want to kind of talk about this, as you said, with their partners, because it's just, they don't want to kind of deal with the rawness of the emotion that comes with it. And also it's, as you said, it's a burden and they Mm -hmm. just, they're ready to put that behind themselves. And unfortunately at times it's much easier said than done. So how, what are some of the ways that you recommend the kind of couples to kind of like do this work together that's not overwhelming to the partner, but creates a space for the veteran to kind of like share their experience with loved ones. First, I I think it has to come from both ends. The veteran has to understand their spouse's struggles while they were gone and acknowledge them. Most uh, military couples have children very early. And so essentially the partner has been living as a single parent. And by the time the deployed spouse comes back, They just want to break from the kids. They want to be an adult again. They want to go through all the things that having a partner back means. So first, there's a lot of wonderful reintegration family programs in the military now. We've learned a lot over the last few years and getting the system restabilized right away and being very proactive in utilizing the resources that are available and being kind to each other while the spouse settles in is powerful. The next thing is not to allow the combat person, the one coming home from that traumatic experience to be treated like they're broken. Mm -hmm. Combat is a complicated experience. Everybody handles trauma differently, but most people who come home from a combat deployment do not suffer from post-traumatic stress syndrome. Only about six to 10% of people exposed to combat come home with that kind of wound. A lot of times what will happen is there's so little understanding of what the partner is struggling with that the assumption is that it's post-traumatic stress. And then they start letting the member isolate. They start protecting, which then ends up enabling the behavior of numbing and avoidance rather than reintegrating into the system where the love is, where the support is, and where the life they want to build is. And I know it sounds, it's not sex therapy, it's family therapy, right? Mm-hmm. Getting the system restabilized is the best thing to do at first. Mm -hmm. What they found is by not having the the system stable and the relationship re-addressed and re-acknowledged that the symptoms for combat stress skyrocket, the symptoms on aggression, on conflicts within the couple skyrocket. It needs to be a very purposeful, welcoming home, almost to the point of ritual right? If this person's going to be in the military, if they're going to go through these experiences, having a system in place, having a way that they know when they come home, this is what we do. We've got two weeks of leave. We do this. I know that at a certain point, my spouse is going to take a vacation and go reconnect with her adult friends, his adult friends, what have you. And then it can go one of two ways, right? There's this fierce lust for life, that has been written about over the centuries. Almost every writing about combat and death 
as a follow-up with a celebration of life through sex. Mm-hmm. I think refinding that and reconnecting with that can be hugely powerful for someone who's witnessed the other end of life. And acknowledging that a little bit can go a very long way and normalizing it. Right. And <laughs> Tim, you're such a great speaker, storyteller. <laughs> I can listen to you for hours. I I could have gone out of the mode of yeah, kind of conversations it's like, oh my God, tell me more. <laughs> but I know if our listeners want to hear more, there's a good place for that since you just launched your podcast. So tell us a little bit about uh, your podcast, where can people get a hold of you? So if our listeners want to hear more and they want to find you, what can they do? So if you want to hear me tell personal stories about my life and the lessons I've learned from them and hear some of the stories I've collected from other men in the helping profession, uh, go on iTunes, go on CastBox, any app you want and search stories and lessons. I've got five episodes up right now talking about my first attempt at social justice, my attempt at doing politics and how that went badly, two episodes on my uh, story from basic training, and then I bring on a very good friend of mine, Izzy Abbas, to talk about his first experience serving with women as an infantryman back in the 80s. If you're interested in my education work and my clinical work, the best place to find out about that is going to be my website, www dot empowered change ce.com empowered change is also on facebook you can follow me there awesome thank you so much tim for your service and thank you for joining us today absolutely it's been a lot of fun thank you so much for having me of course have a great day you too I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tim and I would love to hear your thoughts and your experience of how you were able to reconnect with your sexuality, with your positive masculinity and work through the trauma and feeling of disconnections. If you're a veteran, so feel free to leave us a voicemail at our website. You can record your voice at sexologypodcast.com. And also, I wanted to hear your feedback. So I have this five-question survey that you can find the link in the show notes that's going to ask you about what are some of the topics that you guys want to listen and hear more about because this is a show for you and I want to make sure the content I'm producing is useful for you. So if you have a moment, drop us a line and uh, write us about what you want to learn more about. And I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.